You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Our guest today is Dr. Doug Selvage. He's a project director in the Office of the Federal Commissioner for the Stasi Records in Berlin. He's also published widely on the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe process, Polish-German relations under communism, and the history of the Soviet bloc. Previously, he directed a grant project funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities to translate Warsaw Pact documents into English for the Parallel History Project on Collective Security. From 2001 to 2006, He also worked at the Historian's Office of the United States Department of State, where his publications included the Foreign Relations of the United States on things like European security, and he co-edited a joint publication with the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Soviet American Relations, that had taunt years 1969 to 1972. Thank you for joining us here at the International Spy Museum, Doug. Thank you. So your job is within the Stasi archives now. For our listeners who tend to be fairly educated, uh, certainly compared to most, about intelligence about the Cold War, about the Stasi itself. Um, but l- let's make sure we're all on the same page, and, and let's talk a little bit about what was the Stasi. I mean, the, the, the formal name is the Ministry of State Security. Um, how was it organized during the Cold War? Well, the East German Ministry of State Security was established in 1950, and it was officially the, uh, they called it the shield and the sword of the party, meaning it basically dealt, it basically served the East German Communist Party, the SED. It also, though, Milka referred to it as one of the battalions of the famed uh, Cheka, basically saying Eric Milka, the East German Minister of State Security, he saw them as basically being not only based on the example of the Soviet Union, but also basically as a unit of the NKVD and KGB. Um, in terms of uh, the uh, Secret Service itself. Uh, there are a number of different lines. I can't really remember all of them off the top of my head. Uh, but some of the most important ones, the Foreign Intelligence Branch was called the Main Division or Chief Directorate A, or Hauptverwaltung A, the HVA. They were responsible for basically foreign intelligence and active measures, covert operations outside of East Germany. Of course, you had counterintelligence. That was uh, Main Division Two was responsible for that. Um, there were other divisions as well. Div- 
main division three was responsible for signals intelligence uh phone tapping that sort of thing and well there's actually a whole right. long list of different divisions right. engaged in various activities in the united states there's several levels of what we could all call oversight you've got congressional oversight you've got CIAIG, certainly the executive branch. But you even mentioned it earlier that the Stasi's really only overseer was the party itself. I mean, there's no one else that really checked their power. Am I, am I wrong to make that statement? Yeah, basically the only people who could check their power was the East German party. Uh, interestingly, most uh, it was a requirement practically to be in the Stasi, to be a, an officer there. You had to be a member of the East German party. They actually had their own uh, district committee of the East German party that was responsible just for the Stasi and its members. Um, and there was a com uh, basically a commission for uh, security affairs in the East German uh, Central Committee under the Politburo that was responsible also for overseeing uh, the Stasi, but in later years it was more difficult for them to oversee it because uh, Milka himself became a member of the East German Politburo under East German leader Erich Honecker. So uh, there was oversight over the Stasi by the party, but in a sense they're also interlocking directorates right. and they're practically mixed together. So, you know, where does the party end and the Stasi begin? And uh, yeah, so the, the oversight is definitely an issue, uh, but they're all loyal party members, mm -hmm. and in a sense, they're all on the same wavelength. So right. uh, there's this unity based on democratic centralism, based on the party, and uh, they're basically carrying out the party's orders. And they, and they were incredibly consistent. I mean, the United States directors of the CIA come and go. You know, we know a lot about people like Alan Dulles because he stayed as long as he did, but it was less than a decade when it comes down to it. You had talked about Milke. Milka? Yeah, Milka. Yeah. All right. Um, Eric he Milka. was the head of the Stasi for th over three decades. That's I mean, right. The, I mean, the consistency uh, is astounding from 1957 all the way essentially to the fall of the wall in 1989. Um, and even within that, his, his underling, someone like Marcus Wolf, was there for an extraordinary long time period. Um, is that because they, they consolidated their power as effectively as they did? Is that to, to maintain some kind of uh, institutional knowledge? Is it just because uh, there's nobody else that was uh, even remotely uh, vicious and brutal enough to take over the Stasi? I mean, maybe that, that's not a question that we can answer at this point. Uh, but do you have any insight into why he, the longevity of these Stasi commanders? Well, <laughs> that, that, those are good questions. There's some speculation about some of these issues. Uh, Marcus, I mean, some people argue that Marcus Wolf stayed so long, for example, as the head of foreign intelligence. He didn't always get along so well with Eric Mielke, partly because of his close connections to the Soviet, to Soviet intelligence. And they uh, highly valued his work. He actually was an emigre in the Soviet Union during World War II. He was highly trusted by the Soviets. And in some respects, the HVA, the Foreign Intelligence Branch, it was an intelligence service for the party, for the SED. But also in many respects, it also was a foreign intelligence service for the KGB. Uh, they gathered information that the KGB needed. And in many cases, the things they gathered maybe weren't that important for the East German party, but they were very important for the Soviet Union. In the case of Milka, uh, 
his longevity, of course, that's a little bit more complicated, but I think he was able to ingratiate himself with the East German party secretary, first with Walter Ulbricht, uh, when he first came into the office in 1957, in a sense of... Uh, ironically sort of delineating the Stasi more from the Soviet Security Service, uh, but still basically serving the needs of the Communist Party of East Germany, which in most cases was the same as the needs of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Later on, when uh, uh, it was towards the end of Ulbricht's era, um, Milka knew also when to switch sides. He also knew when to move over to Honecker's side. And later on, he uh, developed a good relationship to Honecker, at least at the beginning. And then Honecker decided to elevate him to the East German Politburo. So I think he was politically savvy. Right. He, he knew how to get things done. And he was a very skilled bureaucratic infighter. There's, there tends to be this perception, at least among people who aren't experts in this field, uh, that the Stasi was always the most brutal of the Eastern Bloc until even more than the KGB. Uh, is, this a, is this a safe assumption or is this something that uh, historically it's, it's more of a reputation versus a reality? Well, I wouldn't want to say anything that would downplay the brutality or the violence of the Stasi, but I think part of the problem is, is uh, people often make comparisons and it's very complicated when you're talking about all of the communist countries and also the Soviet Union itself so I don't in the 1950s I would say in general all of the security services in the Eastern Bloc were more brutal let's say than in the 1970s and 1980s because in the 1950s there was still you know mass executions mm -hmm. there was still uh, a lot of physical violence involved um, and this changed over time. Interestingly, for example, in the 1980s, uh, the Stasi, I think, was less likely to beat somebody up in the street, whereas actually the Polish state security, which was less successful, they used physical violence actually more often than the okay. Stasi in the 1980s. So, of course, the Stasi was also engaged in psychological warfare, right messing up people's lives, breaking them down psychologically. Uh, they still used imprisonment. They still had things like standing cells where, you know, uh, people would stand for a couple hours. Uh, the conditions in their, um, uh, basically in their prisons, I guess they used the prisons for interrogation more. Uh, their jails uh, were worse than, of course, normal East German jails, although there in the prisons also there were the conditions were not so good. So mm -hmm. it's a very difficult right. comparison to make. Okay. Um, you'd already talked about the fact that the, the Stasi and the, the Soviets were, were close collaborators, if not the Stasi being a, a, uh, an extension, perhaps, of Soviet intelligence. Um, and, and, you know, there, there were formalized agreements between the two. Uh, but you, you had told me before we started this that you had just at least run into some documents uh, that indicate a, a closer collaboration than was what's thought between the Stasi and something I'm very interested in, in, in the Cuban intelligence system. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that information that you've just come across? Well, basically, um, I think others have talked about this before, to some extent, at least in Germany, but uh, the KGB, as the Cubans were starting to build up their interior ministry, and under the interior ministry, they had also had their state security service, um, 
the Stasi was basically number two after the Soviets. The Soviets asked the Stasi to use their expertise to advise the Cubans. And there's at least one case, I forget the exact year, I think it was 1974, a delegation from the Stasi visits Cuba. Before they land in Cuba, they actually go to Moscow. They get instructions or they discuss mm. what the situation is in Cuba. Then they go to Havana. Uh, they consult with the Cuban Ministry of the Interior. And it, right after their meeting with the Cuban Interior Ministry, then they talk with the KGB residents or the head of the KGB mission in Cuba. And they're discussing how the Cuban Security Service might restructure itself, uh, uh, who uh, is reliable as a, uh, as a security chief, or who they, they're discussing really internal details about how the Cubans might improve their uh, intelligence service structures, how they can improve how they go about their work. Um, and in terms of cooperation between the Stasi and Cuban intelligence, I mean, they did have a couple major successes. Uh, for example, it was the Stasi, through their cooperation with the Cubans, that they developed the electronic intelligence for spying on the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay. There was also the case of the uh, Marisat satellite system, uh, where um, I'm not sure if it was the CIA or the NSA. <laughs> I need to check on that. But basically, they had developed uh, small devices to put alongside the road to detect when heavy uh, equipment was going down the road. And it was basically meant for tanks being moved, for example. And the Cubans found one of these sensors. They didn't know exactly what it was. So they sent it either directly to the East Germans, or it could be they sent them to the Soviets. And the Soviets gave them to the East Germans to figure out exactly what this thing was. And then they noticed the East Germans and the Soviets, they noticed that also in Eastern Europe, some of these uh, devices were there along roadsides and they were being used by the US also for detecting tank movements in the East in mm -hmm. case of an attack. And so they basically took this uh, device apart, found out the telemetry data for the satellites so that in the case of a war, they could have either jammed it or sent false information. So that mm -hmm. was one of the big coups in terms of cooperation between Cuban right. and East German intelligence. Well, I, and of course, Germany now has, has moved directly away from you know, the Stasi legacy, but I, Cuba may still be the one real lasting legacy of, of the Stasi because they certainly haven't reformed their intelligence services in any kind of direction uh, away from that kind of... Uh, you know, brutality may be the wrong word, but the you know heavy-handedness uh, yes. of the Stasi before them. Uh, it's it's fascinating. I, I'm interested to see how that plays out. Um, now, your day job uh, is with the Stasi archives, uh, which um, has a lot of really real fascinating things involved. I mean, you have a uh, a, a situation in which, uh, unlike the United States, actually, let me ask this as a question instead of as a statement. Certainly here in the United States, we want to research American intelligence, which is my field. Uh, we run into all sorts of classification issues. I mean, even in my very specific field, looking back at the 1940s, I'm still running into classification issues from 70, 80 years ago. The Stasi, of course, doesn't exist anymore. East Germany doesn't exist anymore. Is there any limitation on the Stasi archives? Are there things that are still classified or redacted from the East German time period? Well, yes, uh, our situation is uh, very different. I work in the Office of the Federal Commissioner for the Stasi Records. I'm in the Division for Education and Research. 
Uh, in terms of the records themselves, uh, we have the revolutionaries of 1989 to thank, the East German revolutionaries, who then also occupied the Stasi headquarters in January of 1990 for the fact that these records weren't destroyed. The mm -hmm. Stasi was already engaged in destroying the records. They destroyed some, others were torn up, and we're, the archives have been trying to reconstruct them, and they've been doing a good job with manual reconstruction. Mm -hmm. It's been much more difficult with some of the ones that were uh, ripped up electronic or with electrical devices, with shredders. But they're actually, there's this big computer program they're working on. It's starting to work now, at least for a trial run. It's taken a long time to get the technology together. But in terms of the documents themselves, um, the main restrictions are on personal information. Okay. Because remember, this is a secret police service, so a lot of their records are based on the personal lives of people, right. and many of the things they have collected were based on violations of human rights, brutal interrogations, tapping people's telephones, which actually was even illegal under East German law, even though they did it, uh, opening people's mail, which was also illegal under East German law, but of course they did it. And so, and also there's the most personal details about certain people's lives who are considered for whatever reason to be uh, straying away from the state or to be a danger to the state in some form, even if it's just that they want to leave East Germany. And it has very personal details about their private lives. So there's a special law, the Stasi Records Law, and it regulates the access to the files. So people who were wanted to have their own Stasi files, who were basically victims of the East German regime or who were somehow oppressed by the East German regime, they can apply to see their file. And in those cases, they're allowed to receive uh, their own file documents related to them. But in some cases, they'll only get copies because they're third persons involved, mm -hmm. and it could be that their rights were violated right. or it's personal information. So in those cases, the names are blackened out. Now, of course, in some cases, they can probably guess who the person was, but still, in terms of uh, protecting people's individual rights, it's important that it's done that way. Right. In terms of historians using the records, they are allowed to see everything in the original, including the personal information, but of course, they have to agree to uh, not violate persons' privacy rights by publishing the names, and they have to get permission from the person if they want to name who they are. Um, in terms of classified documents, meaning secrets, a s very small percentage of files were removed by the Federal Ministry of the Interior that have classified information about the former West Germany, about mm -hmm. the Federal Republic of Germany, um, but that is a very, very small percentage. So we're fortunate that these records are open. One thing, though, that happened that I should point out is the foreign intelligence records from the HVA. Uh, I don't know the exact percentage, but something like 90 to 95 percent were destroyed because uh, the decision was made by the Central Roundtable that sort of negotiated the transition between the opposition and the former East German communist government. Uh, they agreed to allow the HVA to basically dissolve itself. Mm -hmm. And part of their dissolution process was trying to destroy all of their records. Uh, whether they destroyed all of them, there are also some indications in the Polish intelligence files that uh, some of the records were shipped off to Moscow. Uh, so it could be that there's some copies in Moscow that someday will be open, but they're not in our archives. We just have, in most cases, 
finished intelligence reports, not all of them from the HVA, and occasionally, of course, in other divisions of the Stasi, because they all work together, you also find information about the HVA and its activities. I, whenever I ran into a, a document that had redaction in it, in you know, the U.S. archives, or there was something that was just completely restricted from me, uh, a little bit of historian drool started where I was like, oh, this is the good stuff. This is what I want to get my hands on. Is that the expectation for these shredded documents, that that's where the jewels are, that when you put those together, that's where you're going to find the really juicy secrets? Um, yes, I think there has been that expectation. I think that certainly there must be, there will be, amongst those documents that were shredded, there will be such documents that are probably the most important. Um, I don't think that all of the documents um, will be so revelatory that you would necessarily drool over yeah. them. Uh, some of them, there are copies of them in other parts of the archive. That's one thing about these giant bureaucracies is, mm. you know, the Stasi was also a giant bureaucracy, and in some cases you have copies of the same documents in another file because somehow another division of the Stasi got involved or somebody they were working on was somehow involved in something that another division was working on. So. Uh, some of it will probably be duplicatory, but there are probably some things in there that are very, uh, very important. And of course, the question is, I forget how many thousands of sacks of uh, shredded materials there are. And so how can you find which which sacks right. are the most important? It, it, it's very complicated uh, process. I, I looked up a lot of uh, statistics on the archive because they just stood out and jumped out of the page. The, the total number of pages uh, in the Stasi archives are about 887 million pages. <laughs> and if you, you lined up, line it up on a shelf, it would take 111, 111 kilometers worth of shelf space. Uh, but this also includes, or doesn't include, uh, 1.8 million photos, negatives, and slides, 30,000 film, video, and auto recordings, 39 million file cards on individual people, um, 47 kilometers worth of film documents, so microfilm. And then you brought this up, 15,500 bags of shredded material. That's right. And these are, I guess these are trash bag size bags of shredded yes. material. Yes. Um, it, it, so it's an extraordinary amount. I mean, I thought we were anal here in the United States about writing everything down. I mean, it's, there are documents on top of documents here. I mean, you've had now, I guess, the Stasi archives were, were going on two plus decades of that is, does anybody know even half of what's there at this point? All you ask the <laughs> difficult questions. Um, no, there's, uh, I mean, people are finding new things every day and because there are so many files, uh, some of the f files are just now being accessioned. I mean, there are some divisions of the Stasi where we're still, the archives are still working on them, getting them ready to be used. Uh, for me, uh, in the past two or three years, what's been very useful since my sort of project division is working on international cooperation of the Stasi, uh, some of uh, many documents from Division 10 that were ripped up by hand, and they don't need the computer program mm -hmm. to reconstruct it, but we actually have people, so-called puzzlers, in the archive, and they'll have a sack of the sort of these... Uh, uh, documents that were torn up by hand and they'll be putting them together like a jigsaw puzzle <laughs> and uh, there have been several hundred new files on foreign cooperation of the Stasi that have been put together in the past few years so there will be 
revelations upon revelations, I think, for a long, long time, especially uh, some files occasionally order something and quite often it's never been used or, or individual files from individuals or unofficial collaborators or victims of the Stasi in some cases. Uh, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they weren't of research interest to anybody, but then suddenly it pops up for one reason or the other, and uh, yeah, you use it then for research. Wow. I'd like to ask you about um, some research that you'd worked on uh, based on some stuff from, from the Stasi archives, um, and it's an operation known as Operation Pandemic, uh, and this traces back to the early 1980s, uh, where uh, the Soviets put out the idea that the HIV virus was actually created by U.S. germ warfare scientists up the street here at Fort Detrick. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about this process? I mean, this is a clear case of, of a disinformation campaign, a clear case of propaganda. Um, but, you know, how did you run into this information? And uh, just tell us a little bit about how uh, this, this actual operation took place. Okay, well, the Stasi name for the operation was actually Operation Denver, and why they called it Denver, I don't know if it's because they saw the Denver clan from West German television, which was basically uh, Dynasty, the American television series, or if they mixed up uh, Fort Detrick with Denver, I'm not sure. They might have just thought it off, up off the top of their head. Pandemic was actually the code name given to this AIDS disinformation campaign by the Bulgarian state okay. security. And, uh, well, actually, it has a lot to do with my co-author, Christopher Nairin. Uh He was uh, researching his doctoral dissertation, which he's finishing up now, on cooperation between Bulgarian state security, the Stasi, and the KGB. And he stumbled across some of these materials while he was doing uh, some research for us, or also for his own doctoral dissertation. And he convinced me of, that they were very interesting, and I started looking into it. And it gave details of conversations between the KGB and the Bulgarian state security talking about the operation. And then also between the disinformation division of the HVA, HVA-10 with the uh, Bulgarians. And that's how we came across it. Um, and then based on these materials, because like I said, most of the HVA's materials in our archives were destroyed, a lot of things we can only find indirectly in other files. And then I started researching over the code name Denver. And then there's the card files of the HVA that mm -hmm. the CIA had, the so-called Rosewood file. And then I found that this Operation Denver was registered there as well. And basically what happened is the KGB, uh, probably through their uh, residency in New York or in Washington or both, they. Uh, started uh, seeing conspiracy theories about uh, AIDS being created by the U.S. government, and they decided that they could run with this campaign for their own reasons. The first article related to it was actually in an Indian newspaper, The Patriot, in 1983, and uh, it was just sort of a one-off, I think, covert action where they planted an article saying, from a, allegedly from an American scientist, in New York, who happened also to be an anthropologist, sort of a strange identity, mm -hmm. who said that he had knowledge that the AIDS virus had been developed by the U.S. Biological Warfare Program. And I think this operation, this one major, was meant to create tensions between the United States and India 
because the article claimed that uh, they were testing it in nearby Pakistan mm. and uh, that soon it might actually wander over the border to India. So this was sort of like a one-off operation. Not much more was done about it. But then in 1985, they began this major campaign. Um, one of the major outlets for KGB disinformation, interestingly enough, was a journal called Literatur Naya Gazette. It was basically a, a literary, literary uh, newspaper. And they published an article about the panic over AIDS. And in the article, they claimed that uh, the AIDS virus was developed uh, through uh, researchers at the, the bioweapons lab mm -hmm. at Fort Detrick, that they had basically genetically manipulated genes and constructed the new virus. There are questions as to why they started the major campaign then in 1985. There are a number of reasons. Uh, one is at the time there were the uh, accusations about the use of Soviet uh, biological and chemical weapons in Afghanistan, the controversy over Yellow Rain. Uh, there was also uh, Lyndon LaRouche's Executive Intelligence Review had an article about uh, AIDS where it suggested it would be uh, advantageous to the Soviet Union, the AIDS epidemic, and this was actually mentioned in the article in Literaturnaya Gazeta, that, and they claimed that LaRouche was working for the CIA, mm -hmm. of course, without any evidence. And they also seemed to have been concerned because in the U.S. press at the time there were uh, articles about how uh, the U.S. was continuing biological weapons research. Uh, there was an international convention, UN Convention uh, Against Biological Weapons, and there was a U.S.-Soviet agreement under Nixon mm -hmm. regarding uh, biological weapons where both sides were supposed to only do defensive research. Right. But of course, what's the line between defensive right. and offensive research? And some journalists were pointing out the fact that some of these experiments that were you know, to develop defenses against biological weapons, whether they're actually developing the biological weapons further to figure out how to defend right. against them, so that could be used offensively. But of course, the Soviets picked up on that and they said, hmm, this could be dangerous, especially since the Soviets themselves were developing their offensive biological right. weapons capabilities covertly. And they said, well, we need to start a major propaganda campaign, and then maybe we can put pressure on the U.S. government so they stop their own sort of biological weapons research, mm -hmm. then, of course, the Soviets could have an advantage. Maybe a little mirror imaging there where the Soviets assumed that we were lying about developing offensive weapons and because that's what they would do. I mean, yeah. if you buy into the United States government agreeing to stop, which, you know, unless full-fledged conspiracy theorists, that's, that's relatively logical. Uh, what we're talking about is AMRID, which, if I remember correctly, is the Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases. That's which, correct. Um, and you know, it, it's a worthwhile conspiracy theory. I mean, if you look at the movies in, in popular culture that's come out since then, the, the Amherd guys in the suits, and whether it's Outbreak or Contagion, or, or just look at a newspaper today, and you know, this Ebola crisis, uh, no one understands it. No one wants to try to understand it. It's just used consistently to scare people. Uh, and, uh, you know, if someone wanted to pick up on that, they certainly could do some real potential propaganda damage the way that this was back uh, in, in 1983 and 1985. Uh, do you see some potential similarities between what happened in the 80s and what could potentially happen today? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would say based on our research, uh, the KGB came up with the idea of this conspiracy theory by reading certain newspapers in the United States. There were a number 
of conspiracy theories uh, in 1983 and before is, is, you know, you have this new virus. It seems to appear out of nowhere. It's hard to explain what exactly it is and why people are suddenly dying. Uh, their immune systems are stopped functioning. And where does this come from? And uh, it's typical that people who are oppressed, marginalized in society, oftentimes they develop uh, conspiracy theories to uh, explain what's going on or to basically point out the, uh, I guess it's a psychological thing to point out uh, how they've been abused historically. And there were a number of gay newspapers at the time where there were authors writing an article suspecting the U.S. government of sponsoring it. They were of course, suspicious. They thought the government was, the Reagan administration was responding slowly to the mm -hmm. AIDS crisis. There were, of course, Christian fundamentalists uh, associated with the Republican Party and also the administration were saying, well, basically, this is a curse of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were arguments about whether they should actually be funding research into it instead of cancer, which happens to normal people. Uh, there was sort of that aspect to it. For African Americans, also were very suspicious, uh, since uh, in their communities there was also a higher level of uh, uh, infections uh, through uh, this new virus, and uh, the, this was a time of revelations in the mid 1970s. There were all these revelations by the Church Committee about mm -hmm. uh, attempts, for example, by the CIA using LSD, these criminal medical experiments, or trying to send uh, Sidney Gottlieb going to Congo right. and trying to well, MKUltra. Going even back to, to the Tuskegee Institute and the, you know, the experimentation by the U.S. government there. Oh. Well, I know, and, and you had mentioned it, the, 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 one of the real knocks on the Reagan administration, his notorious response to the AIDS crisis in the United States, if it was going to be a conspiracy, that's the, that's the response you would expect from the president is, you know, drag his feet, don't get involved until there are many, many deaths and certainly not deaths in communities that a lot of the mainstream, whether it was the right center, or, you know, leaning left even cared very much about at the time. Um, well, and, and even if you look today, the Obama administration's been criticized for potentially moving too slowly uh, on Ebola, letting people come into the country, right. uh, you know, uh, you know, yeah, so I can see that this could be uh, an interesting way to kind of rekindle some of that disinformation. Uh, Absolutely, tonight. and I think it is happening. Uh, what One of the interesting findings was that not only did the KGB pick up on conspiracy theories in the United States and revise them a little bit to their own ends, they basically, they, they had the complete conspiracy theory just by, they could read U.S. Uh, newspapers at the time, African-American gay newspapers, or probably just in the popular culture. They could read what was there, and the only major change they made was to specify Fort Detrick. <laughs> and that was mm -hmm. their big innovation. And pretty much if you look on the internet today, you still see these conspiracy theories everywhere about the origins of AIDS. And if you see one where it says Fort Detrick, then you can actually say that somehow indirectly through whatever chain they were actually being influenced by the KGB disinformation because that was their main innovation. But we, what we also found was that there was this cycle of misinformation and disinformation. Not only did the KGB then borrow these conspiracy theories from the United States and revise them, some of the conspiracy theorists in the United States started citing the KGB hmm. disinformation. They would cite Literatur Naya Gazeta, or the two most famous uh, individuals in terms of the campaign of the KGB 
were two uh, Soviet citizens living in East Germany since 1953, Jakob and Lily Segov. And it's uh, very much a point of controversy as to what their exact relationship was to the KGB or to the Stasi, but they were the ones who basically took the KGB disinformation theory about Fort Detrick and they put together a scientific study where they basically tried to explain scientifically, or at least it sounded scientifically, how it was that at Fort Detrick there were these experiments and how AIDS spread from the United States to the rest of the world. Um, I don't know if I need to go into the details of that, uh, but basically they were... I'm a science intel geek, but uh, maybe others might not be quite that level. Right. But but basically, uh, also it's interesting that some of the people who were involved who either believed the KGB disinformation at the time and actually helped spread it, wittingly or unwittingly, later on in the 90s, some of them were also involved in insane that Ebola was also Mm -hmm. created by the U.S. in a laboratory, maybe not Fort Detrick. It might have been the British also at, uh, what is it, uh, their biological weapons facility at, what, Port Hill Down, or I forget the... I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's always mentioned the... uh, 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 Basically, in some ways, it's practically the same conspiracy theory, but with a different virus. For example, there were two... uh, uh, West German producers who made a film, a film that the HVA claimed that they had covertly funded, and one of the producers was registered as an unofficial collaborator for special tasks for the HVA. They made a film that was shown in West German television, AIDS, the Africa legend, which basically cited the Segals and repeated the KGB disinformation. In the 1990s, after the Stasi was long gone, uh, after uh, they made a second film, I don't know if it was shown in West Germany, I actually read a review in a French newspaper uh, about Ebola, and it was basically, in a sense, the same theory about the U.S. developing as a biological weapon. And what we see today is it could be just, again, conspiracy theorists, you know, spouting their theories, but uh, recently the Soviet press is, or the, no, sorry, the Russian press. <laughs> it's understandable making that, that problem of distinction today. But the Russian press has started to pick up on it and publish it. And so uh, we'll see um, some of the things that uh, are currently happening with the Russian government, with Putin, with, for example, the... Russian television channel Russia Today. Right. Uh, a lot of this is very much in this period of active measures, mm-hmm. and probably there is some government involvement in promoting this theory. But we'll see. Uh, we'll, there might be more indicators in the right. future that there's more direct involvement here. Well, for anyone who's interested in reading your your findings on uh, you and your co-authors' findings on this AIDS uh, disinformation campaign, how how can they go about getting uh, what you've written? Well, what we've written uh, for an American audience is maybe not so good. Uh, until now, it's only been published in German. It's a 155-page study in German, and it's available online. Uh, we can probably put the link on your website. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we're definitely working now on an English article. We hope to submit it sometime next year and get Great. it published. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll even end up writing a book because it's, uh, it's interesting to me how... The, this conspiracy theory continues to live yet today and continues to be spread throughout the globe through the internet. Right. Well, Doug, this is just fascinating. We, we thank you again for taking the time out to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Uh, well, I'll be looking forward to your English article uh, and hopefully a book sometime down the road. 
Uh, and when you do, please come back and we'll, we'll have a talk with you about uh, any new research that you've discovered. And maybe we'll know a little bit more about the Ebola active measures that may be popping up around the world. So thank you again for okay, being Okay, thank you for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.